28, Matthew chapter 28, uh, just the end of that chapter. Uh, it seems a little loud to me, maybe. Usually at the end of the year, uh, we'll be back in Luke, starting not next week, but the week after, and we're going to spend the year again together in Luke. I love Luke because every uh, time we open it, we talk about the Lord, some sort of teaching or some sort of action or ministry that our Lord um, was involved in. But for year-end emphasis or beginning of the year emphasis, I usually like to take a theme and uh, think about it for a week or two. And so this week I've chosen a specific theme that I want to talk about and emphasize for us moving into the new year. We talked in Sunday school about Bible reading. I want to talk about evangelism and discipleship. Building a culture of evangelism and building a culture of discipleship within our congregation. Matthew 28, 18, and 20 will then be our key thought, and I hope, Lord willing, to talk about evangelism today and discipleship next week, but we'll see what uh, God has in store here. At, uh, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, you're probably all there by now. It's a super familiar passage. It's kind of uh, one of the great commissions, at least it, it, one of the places where it is recorded, and if we get to this today, I'll explain what I mean by that. But here it is in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In this passage right here, we have the Lord's instruction on what the church is to be doing while he's gone and he's still gone. So the church is supposed to still be doing this. Evangelism is the phrase, make disciples. Evangelism is the phrase, make disciples. I know it looks like discipleship should be the phrase, make disciples, but making disciples indicates that that is the mission of the church, and you've heard this before. The word go in the passage is a participle. So as you go, as you shop, as you work, as you walk, as you play, as you dine, whatever, as you're doing those things, you're to be making disciples of all nations. Everyone must understand this. And this is where 1950s and 60s Christianity has hurt the cause of Christ. Because evangelism is not about making a decision. It's about making a disciple. Okay, A, a lot of people focused in the 50s, 60s, and 70s on making a decision for Christ. And that making of the decision was emphasized or pictured in the walking of an aisle or the, or the signing of a card or the date in our Bible when we made that decision. Well, many people in my life, in the churches that I've worked in, have made a decision and then made another decision to stop trusting that decision, if that made sense. There was a moment in their lives where they came under the conviction of sin, just like the, the parable of the sower and the seed says, where it says, with joy they accepted the, the gospel, but then when the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches came up, they got interested and distracted in other things. I can't tell you how many young people did this. I'd pray with them at a camp or and I've told you this in the past. They said, oh, praise God, they're, they're saved. And then a year and a half later, two years later, they're gone. We are not interested in, in helping people make a decision. The, the gospel here is explained, or evangelism is explained, as making disciples. And listen, we've been going through Luke. 
about discipleship, especially chapters 11 and 12, which we recently came out of, all the threats to discipleship, right? The, the, the friendships and family connections that we would want to make, that, those things can hinder us. The gospel has come to break families apart, and, and we have just, sadly, even an example that came to our attention last night of a family that we know, of a child who has gone so wayward and is involved in terrible sin, yet is still embraced as a believer by mom and dad who sat in church and heard the God. Well, this makes no sense. No, the Bible says if we are practicing any sort of sinful habit, whether it be living with someone who is not our wife or some sort of homosexuality or we're a constant thief or murderer, right? But, but that person's still a Christian because, because they did what? They made a decision. And so whenever you go to that person's funeral at the end of their lives, I can remember when he was a little boy and he prayed that prayer. I don't want someone at my funeral to say, when Andy was 12 years old, he was in his bedroom and prayed a prayer and that's how we know he's going to heaven. No, I want the example of my life to demonstrate that that trust I placed in Jesus was real because it changed my life and I became a disciple, a follower learner of Jesus where I took up my cross daily and followed him, not perfectly. Where I, where I lost my life to, to seek his, right? That, 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 it's so uh, interesting that when powerful evangelists of our day give a watered-down gospel, they attract to themselves thousands of converts, yet when our Lord gives the gospel, everybody scatters away in John 6. So we would, we would then surmise that the preachers of today are greater preachers of the gospel than Jesus because of the results that they achieve, although all of those results will one day prove to be false conversions. When you think about the parable of the sower and the soil, 75% of the people who are given the gospel end up rejecting the gospel. Churches are full of unregenerate people who think they are saved and are counting on their salvation because even though their lives bear no resemblance to that of a Christian, they point to some date that a pastor wrote in their Bible. We are to make disciples. That is the evangelism part. The discipleship part, which we'll get to next week, is teaching them to observe verse 20. So once they become disciples, once they, and, and we do use that term, they make the decision to follow Christ, but they understand it's a lifelong discipleship process. Now we teach them to observe what God has commanded. This is the two-pronged mission of the church right? As far the, the, obviously, the church exists to glorify God, number one, but the evangelism discipleship mission until Christ is returned is something that I want to focus on this morning. I read a small little book on evangelism this week, and here were four main points. This isn't even part of the message, but I'm just going to give it to you extra, that the four, I'm going to, Max always complains because I don't, not always complains, don't get mad at me, but you, you, those, I, I got three of the four, so th this isn't nothing, don't, don't even write this down, but this is how one person expresses the gospel, okay? There has to be teaching, there has to be the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel has an aim, and the teaching of the gospel has the aim to do what? That would be the fourth point. Now you help me with that. There has to be teaching, there has to be the teaching of the gospel, point two. There has to be the teaching of the gospel with an aim or a purpose. And the teaching of the gospel's aim is to what? What would be that last thing? What is the aim of the gospel? Yeah, to persuade someone to follow Jesus. Notice that the teaching happens first. And, and this is a pet peeve. I've explained this before. I'll preach the gospel all the time and if necessary, use words. Remember when that old saint said that? How can you preach the gospel without words? 
can I fill my gas tank and smile at the guy next to me? And all of a sudden he thinks, I want to trust Jesus. No, there has to be words that are expressed, and that is the gospel. We share the gospel. Notice what we don't share. Pastor Andy and Grace Baptist. Or we don't share, you know, Baptist. We don't share uh, church. We share the gospel. Obviously, this church shares the gospel, so this is a good place to bring people. But a lot of people emphasize church over gospel or denomination over gospel. So we teach the gospel, and the point, there is a point, there's an aim in this, and it's to persuade. That's a great word, persuade, because there's a point where, the, where we, we have to back off and let the Lord do it, but sometimes people just give the information and then say, okay, I'm going to pray that the Lord does something, and they don't do any of the persuading themselves. I like 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, I beg you in the place of Christ, as if Christ were standing here, I beg you to receive him. Okay, so there must be teaching, there must be gospel, there must be an aim, and there must be the persuasion of becoming a disciple. So what is this gospel? I want to be clear on that so we all understand what the gospel is. On February 6th of 2011, I went back to 2011 this morning, I just, I want to start by giving these four main thoughts I gave you on February 6th, then we're going to break into something different. But just to begin the message, here's what the gospel is, a, a beginning so we all can be on the same page about the gospel. First of all, the gospel is revealed in God's word. The gospel is revealed in God's word. The gospel is not what Grace Baptist believes or what famous teachers and preachers believe the gospel is. We do not want to walk away from this place, and you do not want people walking away from you in times of conversation to say, oh, that's what that person believes, or oh, that's what that church believes. What they should be saying is, oh, that's what the Bible says about the gospel. Okay, This is why it's so critical to explain, this is not what Grace Baptist believes when you're ta- you have a conversation in the next month or so with an unbeliever. You don't say, well, this is what my church believes. Well, well this is what my church believes. You know, that, who wants to get into that type of debate? Let me, let's go to the Bible because the gospel is revealed in the word of God. Second, the word gospel means good news. That's all it means. You knew that. It means good message. The word occurs 104 times in the Bible. Thirdly, the gospel is centered around Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. So first, the gospel is revealed in the word. It means good news, and it's revealed in Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Is your salvation earned? Is our salvation earned? You can answer out loud. Is our salvation earned? That's a, it's a trick question, isn't it? It is earned, but it's earned by somebody else. Salvation is earned, right? It, I mean, salvation is not just something that God grants. It was earned by Christ. And this is something that, for me, is a critical point of re- remembrance for all of us when we think about the gospel. And, and I like to think about this. The word atonement, here's how I define the word atonement. It, it would be this. What Christ has done in life and death to earn my salvation. That's the gospel. And, and I love talking about the gospel. I love explaining the gospel in different ways. And I've come to summarize it lately in that small sentence. The gospel is what Jesus did in life and death to earn my salvation. Now, the key phrase in there is in life and death. Because a lot of times we just, we just rush to the cross 
and focus on his work at Calvary instead of thinking about what he did in his life. So two questions. We're still on point three about the gospel being about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I delivered unto you, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and he rose again according to Scripture, right? We, we've all heard that passage before. But we say what Christ did to earn your salvation, he did something in his life to earn it, and he did something in his death to earn it. So I summarize these in this small way. In his life, he was obedient, and in his death, he suffered. In his life, he was obedient. Why was he obedient? Because I was not. And why did he suffer? Because I should have. That is the gospel. He earned it in life and death. Because if he had not earned it in life, his suffering would have been for answer or himself. Right? He would have to pay the suffering for his own wrongdoings. We just recently went through this about the four thoughts about the gospel being God, man, Christ response. God, man, Christ response. And because all people are created by God, they are all accountable to this holy God. Just like we just talked about in Isaiah recently. God is holy and high and unique and, and, and he desires all men to obey him. And, and the instant we are conceived, we are conceived, Psalm tells us, in sin. It doesn't mean the act of uh, of sex was was a sin, and that's why we are sinful. No, it means that the conception of a human being, it, it goes without saying that that human being, how, however infinitesimal that, that uh, unborn child is, is conceived in sin, and that bears itself out in our actions so that we are sinners by nature and sinners by action. We cannot be the obedient uh, faithful sons and daughters of God that we are supposed to be, so we are destined for punishment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, he will come in flaming fire and punish those who did not obey the gospel of God. So Christ, in eternity past, developed his plan, came to earth and obeyed perfectly, fulfilled all righteousness, so he then could suffer in my place. What a beautiful gospel message, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it? I'm thrilled to share that anytime and happy that Christ did that for me. Obeyed when I should have, died when I should have. The fourth point about the gospel, just to begin our message, is this. That the, go- that, that the gospel's benefits only come to those who believe it. In other words, Christ's death was a provisional salvation. It only provided the way for salvation. He did not it does not save everybody until they exercise faith and repentance. In other words, the gospel is not just good advice to obey. It is good news to believe. It is something that we must rest our every hope and faith on. In other words, for the gospel to make any difference in our life, we must sincerely believe what the Bible says the gospel is. And so I want to talk about that a little more deeply this morning because I don't want to take for granted that everybody here accepts or understands the gospel. And I want to do it in, this, in a very similar way that we did with Isaiah. The first study we did for the first Sunday of Advent, we talked about these three major themes in Isaiah, God's sin and then God's response to sin, that God is holy, unique, powerful, sovereign over history, sovereign over man, and that man is sin. Remember, it starts in Isaiah 1, ends in the last chapter of Isaiah with man being sinful and in rebellion against God. And then God's response to that sin is judgment. He is not content to let judgment be the only response to sin, and so he allows for forgiveness, but that forgiveness is conditional based on our own faith and repentance. 
So let's talk about it in these three ways. First, who God is. Second, what I am. Third, what God did. This is the gospel. First, who God is. Second, what I am. And then third, what God did. So let's start with the first thing, who God is. And I think we can say this. Whatever we think about God, it's too small. Whatever our concept of God is, it's too small. He is beyond our imagination. He cannot be explained or understood. Two words that the Bible uses to describe God's uh, majesty is that he is eternal, Psalm 90, verse 2, and he is infinite, Revelation 4, verse 8. The Bible teaches us so much about God in negative terms because he, can't, he can barely be comprehended in a positive way. So the best way to describe God is by saying things that he is not. When we say that he is infinite, this means that God's nature is completely limitless. He cannot be bound he has, he has no time or space or matter restrictions, okay? He is completely infinite in time and duration and space. All of us have a birthday, and on our gravestone will be the death day. We, we are limited. We had a beginning. God, however, did not. He is without limitation, without bounds. And because of this, then, he is an absolute being, which means he is not determinate or conditioned upon anything else. I'm not trying to be too deep on the last Sunday of the year, but we say he is not dependent upon anything else. So to help you, what are you dependent on? Yeah, I'll answer out loud. You're dependent on him, and, and what else are you dependent on? What, what must you have to live? Food, air, water, shelter, clothes. I mean, you've got to have these things. God doesn't need any of that. We are completely dependent upon him where he is dependent on no one. As Moses said to him in Exodus 3.14, who will I say is sending me to do this work? God saying, I am has sent you. That's a staggering thought. All of the omnis of God's attributes fit in this way. Uh, he's omniscient, which means he's not limited in his knowledge. He's omnipresent, which means he's not limited in space. And he's omnipotent, which means he's not limited in any of his abilities. He is infinite in every one of his attributes. Infinite can be an adjective that describes every attribute of God. He's infinitely loving. That has no limits. He's infinitely holy. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely kind. He's infinitely powerful, perfect, and righteous. Revelation 4.8, I mentioned, is the key passage there where it says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So to repeat what I said earlier, whatever our concept of God is, it's too small. And as Dave mentioned, we are dependent upon him for all things, Acts 17.28. In him we live and move and have our being. Anything we have, anything we are, God is responsible for it. He is the one who is utterly glorious, holy, and good. And so what is a being like that owed, O-W-E-D? What is a being that is infinitely holy, infinitely good, infinitely powerful, infinite in duration, time, space? What is he owed? Complete worship and allegiance and obedience. And we come out of the womb saying, right? 
We were created by Him that we might joyfully worship and serve Him in all areas of our life. And everyone fails. And here's the punch in the gut. Number two, what I am. That's who God is. It's real brief, but what I am. We have failed to do everything we just said that this infinite being deserves. We have failed to obey and delight in Him. And in fact, we've completely done the opposite. And we have sinned is what the Bible explains it as. This is the gospel message. This is what our church needs to develop a culture of. And we explain how to do that at the end. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glorious righteousness of God. Because of that, we are all under the penalty of sin, which is death. We have all rebelled against this good God and utterly forsaken His right to rule our lives. Everybody wants to be their own king. And now everybody has social media where they can proclaim their own priorities and values to the world. And don't ask anyone to put themselves under the thumb of a holy God. No matter what is celebrated in this world, God will eventually punish those who did not obey the gospel. This punishment will come with separation, condemnation, and spiritual and eternal death. An infinitely holy God is patient for so long, Romans 2 verse 4. It astonishes me to think about the New Year's celebrations that will be going on and that many so-called Christians will even embrace whether it be with alcohol or music or dancing or celebrations that dishonor God. And God almost, we, we get this image of him sitting in the heavens just kind of putting up with it, so to speak. And, and Christians even today are, are labeling every sin as something that can be enjoyed because why would God want to limit me the way I feel or the way I am? Who are you to tell me this is wrong? Again, this is not what Andy thinks or the church thinks about the gospel. It's what the Bible says. And God says, no fornicator, no homosexual, no effeminate, no thief, no adulterer will ever inherit the kingdom of God. So you almost want to tell these individuals that are engaging in this sin, totally separating themselves from God, say, well, you better enjoy this now because this is it for you. Not in a gleeful way, but in a tragic and sad fashion, sharing with them that they are destined to be separated from God forever in hell, completely incapable of saving themselves. There's nothing we can add that would merit our salvation. So what did God do? Number three, what did God do? In Romans 8, this is what verses 3 and 4 says. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak, God did. In other words, the law cannot save. But God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God's love was so great that it reached down to us in this helpless and hopeless condition. And his son, in the likeness of man, born in a manger, living a completely perfect, obedient life, then suffering at the hands of wicked men, died the substitutionary, vicarious death for me. He, in my place, 1 Peter 2.24, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 3.18, died for all the just for the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus to be sin for us that we might be made the righteous of God. And the verse I read to start off our worship service this morning, Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, say it, Christ died for us. Substitution is the best word that describes our salvation. He took my place. He lived the life I should have lived so he could die the death I should have died. Now what is our response to that? 
just because all these things are true. We must, each individual must, I wish I could do it for my children, don't you? I wish, but each individual has the responsibility themselves to put their faith and trust in Jesus' sacrifice alone to save them. We don't complete or finish any work by adding anything to it. Jesus earned it. Jesus accomplished it. And when we do trust him, we are forgiven, adopted, justified. We are at peace. We are born again. We are free from wrath and so many other things. That's the gospel. That's about 10 minutes of the gospel. Who God is, what I did, what God did. Now, we as a church, I mean, this is why we're talking about this. We're going to move to the end here, but we as a church got to embrace this. You have to embrace this, okay? It's not enough for, for Andy to embrace it. You have to. All of us do. We must value this message. So how do we demonstrate that we really value the gospel? If I said, everybody raise your hand who values the gospel, probably by peer pressure alone, everybody would raise their hand. How do you prove that you value the gospel? Do you really value the gospel? How do you prove it? I want to give you two ways. How do you really prove that you truly value the gospel? First, you depend upon it yourself. You depend upon it yourself. Isn't it interesting? Okay, I would say, I would say that the best two New Testament books on the gospel, what would you say? Just for kicks, what would you say? What are the best New Testament books explaining the gospel? Okay, I'd say Romans, and I'm, let's talk letters. New Testament letters that, obviously, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are great gospel messages. Romans is a highlight of the gospel. What's, the other, what's another highlight of the gospel? We studied it for like a year and a half. Starts with an E and sounds a lot like Ephesians. I'm trying to give you a hint there. Ephesians, Romans and Ephesians. These are two great gospel preaching books. Ephesians 1 to 3. Remember, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us all spiritual blessings in Christ. In him we have redemption through you know, forgiveness of sins. We, we even memorize some of that together. Do you know who Romans and Ephesians were written to? Someone said it. Christians. Christian people. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I long to come and preach the gospel to you who are in the church at Rome. Christians need the gospel too. Isn't it funny? I've preached messages like this in the past, and not like this, but messages that basically were, were gospel messages and had Christians come up afterwards and say, boy, I, you know, almost not said this exact words, but, but expressing it like, man, I could have stayed home today because they, they knew the gospel, right? I didn't, I didn't need this today. I already knew the gospel. I'm already a Christian. Christians need the gospel every day. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel and depend on it. Can I give you three ways we should be depending upon it and what it helps? A lot of times, even though we are believers, our heart condemns us because of sin. We commit certain sins throughout the day and weeks and months that we then, after we commit them, we say something in our minds or to ourselves like, how can I be a Christian? And commit these sins. Am I the only one that does that? You're a little bit silent today. Am I the only one that does that? No, I hope not. But I remind myself of the gospel and say that God's acceptance of me is not based on what I do now, but it's based on what Christ did. And so depending on the gospel protects me 
from guilt. Doesn't mean I won't sin, doesn't mean I should feel free in sinning, but it reminds me that the price for that sin, even that I just committed, was paid for by Christ. I don't have to try to like kind of work harder now and overcome that, but it protects me. It also then protects me the other way when I begin to think, well, I'm doing a lot of good things for God. I'm serving him. He must be pretty happy to have me in his church, in his kingdom. No, it protects us from guilt, and then it protects us, secondly, from pride. Because we say, nothing I can do would ever merit God's approval. And in fact, everything I do for him after I'm a believer is all empowered by him. I also need the gospel because when I am tempted to sin, I am reminded of the price that Christ paid And it protects me from sin. Thinking about the gospel protects me from guilt, protects me from pride, protects me from sin. I read a tweet. I I, I follow very few people on Twitter. Mostly they're pastors or a couple of Detroit Tigers or whatever. But this one pastor this week said, he was quoting from a guy, and I don't remember who the quote was from, so forgive me for that, but it was something like this. The man man who, uh, hold on a second. The man who has breakfast on earth but knows he may have supper in heaven becomes much more resistant to temptation. Does that make, I mean, I know I'm messing it up, but it's like if we know I'm having breakfast today, I talked about it, I, I talked about it a little bit, I think it's Sunday school, then I go out and chop a tree down. This tree could fall on my head. I could choke on a bone. Something could, I know that I had a nice, beautiful, hot oatmeal breakfast but I may be enjoying supper in the presence of Christ. And because I know that and think about the gospel, that that keeps me from sin. Christians need the gospel. Second, we depend upon it ourselves is the first way we show we value the gospel. And secondly, and this is last, we share it with other people. If you really value the gospel, you're going to talk about it with other people. Doesn't that seem to make perfect sense? We can't say things like this. Well, Frank is just, he's just good at evangelism, and I'm not. He just knows how to talk to people, and I don't. I'm a better quiet person. I, I work better behind the scenes. And all that may be true, but that doesn't exempt you from fulfilling what Matthew 28 states here about advancing the gospel. Why in the world would we not share the gospel more and better? Why is this, this, this must be developed in, in our church culture, that evangelism must be a priority? It's not because there's nobody around that needs it. In, in other words, well, hey, we share the gospel with everybody here. I guess we'll just wait now until the Lord comes. Like, there, as if there's nobody here that needs this message. Frankly, the reason we don't share it is because we're afraid to. We don't want to be rejected. I understand that. I have those same feelings. But we must proclaim the gospel clearly. Let me, let me give you kind of four applications here. We may have to talk about this again next week. I see it's 1140 already. So let me just, let me just kind of think through these things. Okay, so you think, well, how can, I, how can I share the gospel better? And how can we as a church do that better? First, let's proclaim it clearly. And I would say, you just got to say it like it is. It doesn't help anybody to kind of lie about it. 
or to, or to I, I use these terms a lot, and you've heard me say this before, to kind of dress the gospel up or water it down. Watering it down is typically when we remove all the tough parts from it, the wrath, the sin, the anger, punishment, hell. And the dressing up is like, oh, you'll really love my church. The people are so nice there. And we don't even really get to the gospel. Proclaim it clearly. Say it like it is. Proclaim it urgently. You say it like, it, like it's important. Right? Say it's like an important, this is an important, this is why I began with teaching gospel aim persuade. There's a persuasion that must happen. This isn't like selling magazines door to door. Or Girl Scout cookies. Would you like to buy some thin mints? No, I don't have enough. Oh, okay. It's not going to make any difference if you accept or reject that. But it will if you accept or reject the gospel. Proclaim it frequently. Proclaim it frequently. Say it, say it. Over and over. Proclaim it compassionately. Proclaim it clearly, urgently, frequently, and compassionately because it is desperately needed. There is a world around us that is incurably sick, Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, whose hearts are desperately wicked. And they need to have the same Savior pointed out that John the Baptist pointed out when he came. There's the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. And he has provided this complete atonement where nothing needs to be added. He died in your place. If there's, if there's something we as a church can improve on, this would be a great... We'll probably move on to discipleship next week just because I want to do it in two weeks. But as we close, I want you just, just kind of think about how did I do last year at sharing the gospel? Who are people I can share the gospel with this year? And again, we're not talking about inviting to church. We're not talking about, you know, talking about Grace Baptist. We're saying, who can you go through this gospel with? Who can I give a track to? Who can I share the Bible with? And let's all seek to do a better job at that with God's help. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gospel. We are happy to know what Christ did for us, and we desire boldness in our gospel witness. Please help these brothers and sisters who I know desire to share the gospel more. Give them opportunities. Give them give them. Uh, Give them uh, powerful uh, speech and clear, uh, concise language to share the gospel with. And then, God, you do what we can't. We, we know that you have to eventually uh, convict the heart of sin, and so we pray that you would do that. But, Father, help me. Help me. Let this culture of evangelism in our church start with me. Help me to be a person who shares the gospel with people I come in contact with, whether they be strangers or, or acquaintances or friends. God, we, we rub shoulders with people all the time. Help us to know how to say a word. We've talked about this in the past. Just give us, give us new vigor to do this in the new year that we might see much fruit accomplished as a result. And we pray these things in Christ's name.